Hello, everybody. Welcome back to the show. Just briefly before we get into this episode and chat about lizards, uh, I want to, I guess, apologize for missing a couple episodes this month. I've been away. I've been uh, I've been exploring some opportunities, been on a bit of a trip. I was trying my darndest to be prepared and have a bunch of interviews in the bank. I thought maybe I would do some on the road and it was things were just too wild and crazy. I'm still I'm still learning how to integrate mind under matter um, and into everything else. Uh, that I do with creating space for other things. And we kept up with Mind Under Matter, had enough in the bank to cover the entire period um, that I was away. And that show has a weekly episode, a weekly bonus episode, a monthly bonus episode. And so it was kind of all that uh, all that we could do to get ahead on that fell behind on here we are getting caught back up now already recorded the episode for next week which is a good one as well and uh lining up some guests have uh i'm excited to have a good fall ahead uh actually trying to um trying to scramble um to get caught up in a head again before i leave again um going to vegas for uh this i'm seeing this meet delic conference going to la to do some podcasts i just did uh i did pete holmes you made it weird podcast one of my favorite humans on earth made my fifth appearance and it's uh it it's one of my favorite podcasts and I've been on more than any other guests. So it's really cool and flattering that, uh, uh, that I get to be a regular on, uh, on, uh, basically my favorite podcast so check that out if you like um and i've just been busy generally i just got super overwhelmed this summer fortunately i was like being active and getting some exercise because i just i was also kind of miserable in certain ways at the same time it's because as uh things started opening up i was just trying to figure out which of the things that I'm working on, this is, I've talked about this on the show before. A lot of times I get hit with, uh, with, with long kind of funks in depression when I have a, uh, like when I'm starting off on kind of a new path and sorting out, which I, I have a lot of irons in the fire and I'm trying to, uh, a, a lot of them are really exciting um they're usually really ambitious usually take a lot to get them done evaluating you know what the likelihood of them happening are is it realistic is it really what i want is it, it you know figuring out uh, this uh thank you for the patreon support by the way covid has been an incredible financial um uh, burden on me and uh still sorting out what I'm going to do in terms of touring because the plan has still been to start next spring because I believe this winter is still going to be bad with COVID and um, I'm just not, 
I could go and do like regular comedy in clubs and get a flat fee or something like that. But the way that I structure independent shows to do the things that I like, like sciencey shows and stuff like that, I produce my own shows. I get, you, you know, a, a percentage of the door and, and, and it's already, there's, there's just a lot of factors and anything that, uh, even safety or social responsibility or whatever aside, anything that, um, that dramatically uh, uh, reduces consumer confidence in, say, packing indoors shoulder to shoulder is something that is already a challenging um, uh, thing as an independent producer, as as anyone in uh, musicians or anyone else listening would know, is, um, you know, it's already... Uh, before COVID, I was like, okay, I know I can get X number of butts in a seat to justify this tour and going here to this city, right? And so all of that's more complicated now. And so it's just been, uh, yeah, it's been, it's been uh, um, just a heck of a summer just in terms of figuring out what's next and i'm kind of and so part of this trip was clarifying that and um i feel like it's sometimes rude to my guests to go on a long <laughs> rant like this before their episode because this has nothing to do with them but you guys are regular listeners and want to know about uh when i'm going to be touring and stuff like that and i get questions all the time so i wanted to address it i have I just have some cool, I, I wish I could tell you guys about it. I should be getting, I should be getting some clarity on a few things really soon. Some things are looking pretty promising. One thing in particular is looking pretty promising. And uh, so I hope to tell you about it real soon because um, it will mean a change um, for some things in a lot of ways. But won't be changing this podcast other than if other things work out for me it just means that i have um more uh time and energy to away from fretting about figuring out what to do and putting together this and that to earn income and can just relax and uh, book this show each week and and do it uh in the way that i like without worrying about how to get highlights to get this number of views and how to get X number of Patreon supporters and, and that sort of thing. But, uh, I do very much appreciate your Patreon support once again, because at the time being, that is everything that is making this show happen. If you happen to be feeling generous, please go to patreon.com Shane Moss as, uh, that's, Every single dollar from that goes to supporting the making of this show, paying, uh, paying my editor, Matt, my assistant, Rihanna, and uh, no one's making a killing uh, on, on uh, this podcast or on Mind Under Matter. Um, uh, these are things that are growing and we do because we like it and love doing them, um, but 
we don't do ads. And so it's 100% supported by your Patreon support. That's the world that I want to live on, where people pay for the products that they like, rather than being pitched a bunch of stuff uh, that they don't care about during the thing that they like. So if you're into that model, please support patreon.com Shane Moss. Um, lots more great episodes coming up. Sorry for the inconsistency of late. Back on track now. Feeling good. Feeling optimistic about the rest of the year. That might be foolish, but that's how I feel right now. So, more info soon. Thank you guys for listening. Are we? Yes. Where are we? Here. Why are we here? Not entirely clear. We are misfits thrust into existence by random chance with no hints at all as to how we're supposed to make sense of it all. It's immensely bizarre. Here we are. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Here We Are podcast. I'm Shane Moss, and I am excited because uh, I... I get very lucky. One of the good reasons, uh, one of the uh, reasons why I'm able to get such good guests regularly on this show is I get suggestions from past guests that I like all the time. And I was just having a, a little poker night with some professor friends recently. And my good friend, Jeff Larson, um, put me in touch with the guest today. Sean Duty is joining me today. Sean, can you introduce yourself to everyone and uh, talk about your background and where you, we were just talking about how you're in Florida, one of my favorite parts of it, in Sarasota, and you're teaching at uh, St. Pete's. Right, uh, USF St. Pete, um, where I've been for about four years as a assistant professor. Um, and uh, before that, I was born in cold Buffalo when I was two years old. I said too cold. So we, my family moved to Louisiana mm -hmm. and I did a couple of degrees there and got the opportunity to go to Australia to do a PhD. Ooh. So twist my arm, right? And off I went. Where in Australia? Uh, Canberra, the capital. Yeah. Okay. But my I field work there. was up in the tropics studying turtles on a beautiful tropical river. Uh, so that was nice. Um, <laughs> and I stayed there for 14 years and almost didn't come back, but I missed family, so came back and uh, spent a little time in Salt Lake, then uh, back in Louisiana, and then here I am in South Florida, loving it. Nice. Those are all pretty good places. I think you have made the right move leaving Buffalo. Um, it's it's uh, it's okay. I've always enjoyed it enough what I went through. I actually have you ever heard the sentence? It's like a it's like a fun linguistic example of odd sentences that are actually grammatically correct but don't sound like it. All it's, right. Um, buffalo, 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 buffalo. Buffalo, 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 Buffalo. Have you ever heard that? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, okay, you have. Because the, the word Buffalo can be a verb to mean to bully. Yeah. I, I'm sure I've mentioned this on the show before. So, Buffalo from the city of Buffalo, that bully buffaloes from the city of Buffalo. They themselves also bully Buffalo from the, uh, from the city of Buffalo. And... I assumed that everyone from Buffalo was familiar with that, like you were. So my very first time performing in Buffalo, 
I hopped on stage and just started saying Buffalo uh, insane number of times if you don't know the context mm-hmm. for why I'm I'm saying it. And I did it as if to like ingratiate myself to the people like, hey, I know your local thing. And uh, it was maybe the most blank stares I've ever received <laughs> in my entire comedy career. But then we all learned something together. Right. I told them afterwards. But um, but yeah, awesome. So Australia, Florida. Cool. Um, some of my favorite places. And what's your what's your research now? Uh, mostly an ecologist and conservation biologist. So uh, and I focus on reptiles mainly. Ooh, so, yeah. Um, all right. Well, let's first off. Do you know uh, do you know Robert Trevor's by chance? Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's a he's a friend of mine. I go to uh, well, I, before COVID, I'd go down to Jamaica once or twice a year, and I happen to be in the same area that he lives, and we'd um, we'd always we'd always get together. But he was uh, he would always show me his he'd always have pictures of lizards he'd seen around lately and be like oh, oh look, look at this this one here this female oh that, that's a hot one <laughs> he would, he's he a would brilliant thinker <laughs> trivers he's great uh, yeah yeah and uh a, a, a very um very interesting human um let's do some uh what are you up for you want to do like a lizard 101 episode whatever you want to do we can do it that's what I would like to do, ideally, just because I think lizards are so fascinating. We can get into things more broadly as well, but yeah, people people like lizards. Sometimes they have them as pets. They're uh, they're fascinating creatures. So yeah, can uh, how about how do you start uh, a lizard one hundred and one conversation? Well, as it relates to the book that we just published, um, what's the book? Uh, the Secret Social Lives of Reptiles. Okay. And uh, and obviously the the center, the theme for that book was social behavior and sociality, and it's um, and it's the lizards that show the best examples of social behavior, probably across the board compared to the other reptiles, right? The turtles and the, the crocodilians and the snakes. So. Um, Lizards kind of steal the show when it comes to behavior and social behavior. A lot of them tend to be very visual, which we can kind of relate to as humans, Mm. where your snakes are less visual and um, are doing the chemosensory thing and sniffing everything out. Turtles are a little more sort of hidden away. They do do use their their vision as well. But we can kind of relate to lizards. They get a bit of a mixed review. Some some people are afraid of them, right? but they're not as bad as the fear of lizards is not as bad as snakes and crocodilians. Yeah. Turtles are the favorites, right? For reptiles and everyone likes turtles. Right. Yeah. What's that? Uh, that's interesting. What is with the, the lizard? I mean, they do, they do look a little like dragons or something. What's with the, is there an actual lizard that people need to look out for? Uh, not so much in this country. Uh, lizards are, yeah. I mean, we've got a few introduced, um, Goannas, the big monitor lizards in Florida, mm. uh, and tegus. So those guys, if you if you grab them, you could pay a price. There's a couple of venomous species out in Southwest and and Mexico, the 
the beaded dragon, uh, beaded lizard, and the Gila monster. Mm. Um, so, but in this country, you know, lizards are not much of a threat to people. Get to Australia, and you get these really big six foot lizards, and of course the Komodo dragon. Right there, right the giant monitor lizard, the Komodo dragon, which occasionally takes a person. So. Um, what, what, how how often does a Komodo? It can't be that many. How many how many people we lose in a year to Komodos? I don't know what the annual loss to Komodos is. I'd say it's <laughs> uh, probably one every ten years or some somewhere in that yeah, range. Yeah, yeah. Um, and uh, you know, the last story I heard was someone was out relieving themselves and got taken. Um, so I think you have to you know you can war- you can ward them you can use a stick to keep them off you so it's not too hard to avoid them right. getting you but uh, every now and then someone makes a mistake that's such a weird thing to break it to the family too right. and <laughs> they were, what happened uh komodo dragon happened very bad luck because yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, even even with you know out west uh, pumas and cougars uh, they're you know we lose less than one per year or something like that. And grizzlies, yeah. grizzlies, same thing. It's pretty low numbers annually. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, so you're in, you moved to Sarasota recently. Um, my first ever headlining gig, like two or three years into comedy was uh, in Sarasota. It was, um, it was for New Year's. 2006 2007 and i stayed at a condo there and it was my first time on the road and i was so excited and i got there and there was just lizards everywhere and i i loved it so much they're they're all over the place in those parts where else are lizards around the united states mostly the native lizards are most common most prevalent in the southwest they do really well in deserts um and so if you want to see lizards in the u.s you go to arizona and those sort of places so arizona southern utah california uh, new mexico etc um but but florida has this amazing diversity of invasive lizards right that don't belong here from the pet trade because florida and miami in particular is like the nexus of the pet trade in reptiles and then people have all these lizards and they get tired of them or whatever and just release them and now we've got wild populations of i believe it's somewhere in the order i want to say 38 species or something native sorry invasive Mm. species of lizards loose in florida breeding spreading Etc. So it's kind of almost taking over the Southwest, which where you have your native lizards. Um, Do they cause many problems? You'd think they would just be uh, a lot of a lot of excess food for a lot of things. Yeah, it's a ra- it's a range, Shane. It's uh, you've got the geckos on your house that are probably not excluding any natives uh, or even competing much with any natives, uh, and then you've got. Some of the big lizards, uh, the tegus that are eating the eggs of um, the American crocodile, which is protected. And uh, some of them are also the Nile monitor are, are eating burrowing owls, apparently, to some extent, and those are protected. So there can be some cases where certainly the, the, some of these invasives are taking a piece of the pie that affects native wildlife. Um, but there are many species that are not 
taking a noticeable chunk of the pie that's, that in which we consider there's a huge problem right now. Um, so regarding their, so you say the secret social lives of reptiles, why is it a secret? Just, I mean, I guess it is, it, you don't commonly think of reptiles as, uh, as being social. You, uh, you, you know, you think about ants or other primates or, um, pack hunters or something like that as as these classic examples of social life and exactly so that's the that one of the two reasons that we really needed we felt we needed to to publish this book was we think of mammals and birds when we think of the most complex social behavior um mm. and so the student or new researcher interested in social behavior is going to gravitate to mammals or birds and and maybe hymenoptera and you know, ants and stuff as you mentioned, um, this has created a bias in in that we have uh, we don't know we, we've underestimated the social behavior in reptiles and the other reason relatedly is that most people study mammals and birds uh, that that are studying vertebrates not reptiles so. For example, the number of species of mammals and reptiles is similar, and yet there are four times as many studies on mammals than there are reptiles. So, you, you used to the word knowledge gaps, right, Shane? So, you know, we yeah. hear about knowledge gaps. With reptile behavior and ecology, it's not a bunch of knowledge with little gaps in it. It's a, a giant gap with tiny bits of knowledge in it. So, it's, it's reversed. Mm -hmm. We need a word for it, maybe knowledge mm -hmm. canyons or something. Yeah, uh, yeah. So, so we got that situation. We don't know what's going on. And it's partly because most reptiles are pretty secretive. Um, so yes, there are the lizards down here that you see on your house and what have you, but uh, the majority of reptiles, you know, your snakes, for example, turtles out in ponds and things, we can't watch those, those animals see what they're doing all the time. So um, a lot of reptiles are out at night. Know, who goes out in the swamps to look at gators at night, you know? So there's a lot of secretive things going on. We don't know what they're doing. And there's been this dichotomy that's come out of this that says mammals and birds are social, reptiles are asocial. And mm. the three of us co-authors who knew the literature pretty well on social behavior and reptiles knew that this was not a true representation of what's out there. So we are trying to sort of smash that dichotomy and show that there are reptiles that do some pretty amazing social things. And in fact, they go from very solitary to social, depending on which species or group. And that mm. helps us understand how social behavior evolves, right? Um, so we need to understand, if we're going to understand how complex social behavior evolves in things like mammals and birds, we need to trace back to their effectively uh, reptilian re ancestors and understand more simple social behavior, right? So we can't really understand the evolution of social behavior without understanding how this, how reptiles play a role. Yeah. It's, it's such a, it's such a confusing evolutionary puzzle to understand the, these things that we value so much, uh, humans being such social creatures. These say we, we value friends and 
cooperation and altruism we give to strangers right. and, and do all these things and you know you hear something like the selfish gene which is probably a misleading title of a book but got got attention um mm -hmm. and you, you try to make sense of cooperation through that lens and uh and it is it is a little confusing. Why the heck is there social life in every a lot of a lot of life on this earth is pretty solitary and seems to get along just fine <laughs> on its own. Sure. And it's uh, in a lot of cases, in most cases, I think animals are being very solitary in some ways and very social in others. And uh, you know, reptiles are classic and they'll sit there and do nothing for ages. Um, and you try to watch them, it, they'll outweigh you, right? And uh, and then they'll do something really interesting for five minutes. And if you miss it, that's it. And then you've got hours of them doing nothing again. <laughs> and, and this this that's, this contributes to that bias of that they're not doing anything social. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you gotta. Do you ever set up cameras? Right? I suppose with the lizards can move so well that that seems impossible. Hey, how do you capture this? Because as you were talking about kind of a lot of this behavior being hidden. I was thinking, yeah, you know, I paddleboard. Uh, I've been paddleboarding a bunch this summer and I'll see turtles on a log and I'll try to like be quiet and just float mm -hmm. and maybe get my camera out quick. And man, even even turtles notorious for being extremely slow are a, a pretty darn skittish mm -hmm. uh, species. And, and they hop off that log the second they get the first glance of anything unusual coming at them. And uh, yeah, I, I don't actually recall seeing lizards in any kind of group, anything that looked like much of a party happening. Right. Um, you do see the, 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 I, I guess one thing coming to mind is, is you see like the, the den of snakes, like keeping one another warm and stuff. You see that on the, uh, Attenborough documentaries is they'll they'll show that sometimes. Then usually it's a solitary lizard just being born running through that whole pit of of snakes or whatever. So how do you how how did it, people determine that lizards were social in the first place? And then how do you go about doing your your research? I mean, it does seem it, like it sounds like you need a lot of patience, but it also sounds like a pretty chill <laughs> way to spend a day. Yeah. So I, for people like me, it's a blast. But uh, remember that social can mean interactions between just two individuals. So you're, right. you're not necessarily looking for a huge group. Um, we do no see parties. we do see big groups of lizards uh, communally nesting. Um, iguanas do it, uh, skinks do it. There's a bunch of different lizards that the moms all get together and nest in the same area. And that's something I've studied for quite a long time. S there's always some moms that are nesting solitarily too, but usually you get most of the moms of a species or a population nesting together. And we're still trying to understand the benefits of that. It looks like the moms are sharing information, right? So if you're a lizard, especially if you're kind of small, like the little skinks, you got to go out and find a site that has the right temperature and moisture to put your eggs because you don't stay with your eggs usually. And so you got to be careful and pick the right site where the eggs are going to hatch and pass on your genes. Well, 
if you come across another mother's eggs, she's wired the same as you looking for the same thing. So you can save time, energy, and perhaps not get eaten by a bird by spending too much time looking by adding your eggs to her eggs. Um, and so we see a lot of that. Um, hmm. So the benefits could be to the mother, could be to the eggs uh, or even the hatchlings when they're, when they hatch. So communal nesting is a big one for lizards. Um, another neat lizard story is uh, we think of monogamy as being pretty rare, right? In, in animals. And there's even arguments about it in humans, right? Uh, how, right. how, <laughs> how monogamous are humans? Um, well, and so we would expect it to be pretty rare in, in reptiles and, and we don't know, but there's a lizard in Australia, the sleepy lizard, which has something called seasonal monogamy uh, in which pairs get together during the breeding season for several weeks to a couple of months and they mate regularly. They then spend the rest of the year off on their own separately and then they meet back at the same place, the same two meet back at the same place the next year to mate again for a few mm. weeks to a couple of months. So they call it seasonal monogamy and there's this sleepy lizard is called in, in Australia that does this. Interesting. And, uh, and, and one, one pair has been tallied at 27 straight years now. That really? Met, that the same pair have met to mate. Well, first off, what is the lifespan range of various lizards? I mean, it's probably a huge range, but in my mind, I was thinking lizards got like a few years in them or something. They, they must, they must have a lot more than that. We don't have good data for anything that wasn't in a zoo for a long time. Uh, so mm. that's the hard part. Um, there's generally a body size thing. Yeah, the, the little anoles all around the houses in South Florida probably only live three or four years. Mm -hmm. As you get bigger, you tend to live longer. Um, and some lizards live up to 30 years, iguanas and things. So, and maybe longer. So that's a tough one. And it's even harder in turtles, which live longer than lizards. Um, we know some turtles are going over 100 easy. So some things are outliving us, which is pretty daunting if you're trying to do research on an animal that outlives you, right? Yeah, yeah. That's, I, had a, I had a pet turtle. My goodness, how long ago was that? Probably, probably 16 years ago or something. I got it in a relationship. And then when, when we split up, she took the turtle. Thank goodness. Um, which, uh, and, and it's still alive. Um, we keep in touch once a year, or whatever. Uh, me and the turtle, not her. Uh, but, but, uh, yeah, it's still, and we had no idea how old it was when we got it. They, they didn't know at the pet store or whatever, but it, it was, it's funny because, you know, I go out and about and I can't really see what the turtle's doing underwater or see much of their behavior. But mm -hmm. in a tank, you can see like, OK, well, this turtle does a bunch of nothing all day. But that's a very it's a very specific situation. A zoo is a very specific situation. Labs are very specific situation. Most most of most of people's um uh, domestic lizards are are in a similar just in an aquarium or whatever, mm -hmm. which I imagine is uh, just so drastically different than what life would be like otherwise. And it must it must make it um, some of the some of the research a little confusing. Yeah, but there's been some you know some of the great sort of 
insights into social behavior have come from researchers keeping animals in the lab, especially mm. uh, in particular, my co-author, Gordon Berghardt, did a lot of I that kind Gordon of work. Gordon on recently. Yeah, he's done a lot of that kind of work. And his lab and another lab in the UK have shown recently that turtles um, engage in something we call conspecific learning. So they learn by watching another individual of their species. And so you can you can modify your aquarium at home in such a way that you get them to perform something to choose a color or a something and they get a food reward or whatever and then and then you can get them to do things and and so basically what the uh, group in the UK has done for example is uh, have a turtle train a turtle to perform a task and get a reward and then another turtle can see that turtle perform the task and that's its only way you didn't train it but it figures it out by watching the other turtles so, wow so we've demonstrated that now in turtles and and I think in a lizard recently as well. So no There's, one's ever tried, right? These are, you know, we know crows and birds do this regularly. We know mammals can do it. Um, I'm trying to think of the, there. there's some fish that they were, is it salmon? Maybe. Well, anyway, whatever uh, uh, hatchery or whatever was trying to understand, um, you know, the, the role of kind of juvenile development in, in the species as they release it out in the wild, they're like, are we, when we release these things, are they all just being eaten because they haven't had the, the natural training right. that mm -hmm. would be provided. And they did similar studies where they would have the predator fish in with some of them. They would have no predator fish right. in, and then they would have ones where, uh, it was both where the ones with no predator fish would get to watch the ones with the predator oh. fish and they, and they did pretty well just through observing those interact, not as good as having the actual experience, but a lot, 100% of them got to live. Uh, so and you can't, but, you can't figure that stuff out without experiments, right? You, you just can't. Right. And, uh, a really neat one that hasn't been looked at in reptiles to my knowledge, is mate choice copying, um, yeah, yeah. which humans do. Uh, there's a whole research that humans, you know, a, yeah, fem like, a female. I... If a female knows a male gets a lot of matings, she's more attracted to the male. And they've done yeah. stuff with fish and, and and experiments with fish and shown that they engage in mate choice copying. And I'm sure we're going to find that this occurs in in reptiles as well. Yeah, that's interesting. To me, it seems like females in a lot of species i mean the environment's always kind of shifting slowly over time and and a lot of times it feels like males are sometimes the kind of spaghetti being thrown against the wall in, right. a, in a given area and 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 then females maybe having to uh, evaluate a bit more criteria before making a choice then uh, can can look at what other females are choosing and that being a bit of a uh, like a, a job reference or something right. that you would get give to get interviewed for a job um yeah that's fascinating and then um, sometimes it pays off and then it the way you explain that some individuals don't copy choices of others is that sometimes it doesn't pay off, right? If you copy a yeah. bad choice, then you don't pass on your genes and that happens. And that's why 
I mentioned earlier, when you get communal nesting and lizards, there'll always be some mothers that go do it on their own. Yeah. Because in some cases, um, communal nesting has some benefits, but sometimes it all falls apart. Yeah. Um, there's yeah. a there's a famous gathering of um, sea turtles nesting in in Costa Rica called an arribada. You might have heard of, and you know we're. Oh man! Formerly hundreds of thousands, and now tens of thousands get together and nest there. And some of those beaches, the nest success is two percent because it's gotten out of hand. So you got all these turtles nesting in such tight quarters that moms are digging up the eggs of previous moms. So you got all this spoilage everywhere, and then microbes are taking over the whole beach, and because of the spoilage and killing live eggs. And then you end up with 2% hatch rate because it's just too many turtles trying to nest in one area. So yeah. presumably those ones down the beach further that are kind of on their own, they start to pass on their genes more and, and this communal thing might fall apart for a while, right? And these things, as you say, in time come and go theoretically. Interesting. How do you get, how does something get, uh, take off within uh is i've i've heard ideas that um you, you know kind of in in game theory modeling cooperation works really well if pitted against other strategies but getting it to take off in the first place is really really difficult and 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 some species the idea being that there was uh uh some speciation that happened where a small a small percentage of the population got isolated in a small island and and there was a lot of relatedness which led to a lot of uh a, a lot more reciprocity and and because they were sharing a little more genes that cooperation was more and more in their favor and then once they had those cooperative uh, kind of instincts and patterns and habits and genes, everything else evolved and got reintroduced back into the general population through whatever circumstances mm -hmm. that those, uh, that, that cooperative strategy had an advantage within the full, um, population. So I, I imagine, I imagine not every case is like that, but still just fascinating to think about the, many ways something like that could take off. Yeah, we can't tell when it doesn't, right? So um, it's hard to know how often it does and what it takes and what the odds are. Hmm. Um, what about, well, first of all, I mean, I, I, I would be doing my audience a disservice if we didn't talk about lizard genitals a little bit because <laughs> they what we got we got like uh like hemis right we got like two two four-headed <laughs> penises and lizards two penises called hemipenes and uh they're each species they tend to be uh up close and the snakes have this as well have lots of little spines and things on them um and they fit perfectly into the female and she she can have gaps where the spines go and all that sort of thing. And, and quite a long time ago, we used that to help um, tell species apart uh, where we now tend to use genetics a little bit more, but um, so it's um, 
when you look at a close up of these two hemipenes with all these spines in them, it's 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 painful to think about. <laughs> yeah. Um, and and uh, and but it it works really well. So um, when we catch some of the giant, uh, the bigger monitor lizards in Australia, they the males tend to evert those hemipenes, and so they'll, we'll have these long purple hemipenes dangling out of the lizard as we hold them. And it's, wow. it's, it's great because um, the males are, the, the big ones are males. We know that. But when you get an intermediate size, we don't know if it's a male or female. And sometimes that's what we get. So then we know we've got our male. Wow. Is, is there, what, what's the, how, what's the advantage of spikes? Is it just, you can kind of. I've seen some lizards kind of clamp on to a lady for some time and ride her along or, or is it, or is it, is there, is there something about the, um, uh, like puncturing, like slightly puncturing insides that releases blood flow or something like that, that nurtures eggs or what, what's the, what's the use in a spiky penis? Why I don't think we the main, the main thing is to, uh, for fit and to hold on. Yeah. Right. So, um, if you see two lizards mating, the male is usually on top or on the side of her. And then his tail is twisted. The base of the tail is twisted over hers and, and the hemipenes inside. So, um, and they often do lots of head bobs and moving around and things. And I think it just helps anchor the <laughs> it's just an anchor well oh my you know gosh. it's it's hard to be you know, we can be anthropomorphic maybe it's uh, right. i don't know if it's a stimulation if there's a stimulation issue there right. as well right um, huh. it's actually not my area but uh it may be there's there's more to it than just anchoring huh um so in terms of evolutionary history, do we know, I imagine the, the more solitary reptiles uh, came first, or are there more of them, or is there, what's, what's the split between solitary and more social lizards? Um, it's tough because we have, we have a hard time, Shane, figuring out how to call something social we're trying to move away from calling something social or solitary because in some aspects of its lifestyle or life history, it could be solitary and other aspects quite social. Um, so some lizards guard their eggs. Um, others don't guard their eggs, but do communal nesting. And so there's a lot of social things going on there. Uh, others do that monogamy I talked about. Um, so you could be highly social in the parental care way and then you could be not very social in terms of your offspring um so uh we find in our book we talk about how recently in the last maybe 15 20 years we're discovering that a lot of rattlesnakes are caring for their their babies for weeks up weeks to months so and, and even fathers are protecting their young. So um, these are babies that have been around for weeks and the father's still protecting them. So my point is, it's really tough. We haven't come up with a system yet to give something a score for how social it is. So mm. we don't like calling everything social and asocial, but I get where you're coming from. So you could just reword it and say, well, 
more social and less social. Um, and this, there's not a magic split, but there are just certain groups that engage in certain social behaviors and other groups that, that don't seem to. And then within those groups, you got exceptions. So most skinks, for example, which is a very uh, speciose group of lizards, most of them lay their eggs and leave, but then there are certain ones that stay with the eggs, guard the eggs, keep them free of fungus, uh, keep them free of predators like beetles. Uh, so these things just pop up, they evolve in these groups. Um, and so, but remember, undermining all of this is this knowledge canyon I talked about, right? Mm -hmm. Where we just don't know. So I can pick a random species, especially somewhere outside of the US or the UK, oh, sorry, or Europe, where there's less people. So we go down to the Southern Hemisphere and talk about uh, South America, Africa, and Australia. We just know so little about most lizards and turtles that I can't even begin to tell you whether they're social or more solitary. Hmm. So we've got a lot of mess to clean up, so to speak, um, before we can get a full understanding of, I think, your question of how the social stuff falls out across the different types of lizards. Uh, could you could you give just kind of a, a, a kind of evolutionary history of lizards? How long have they been around, and um, kind of where they fit into uh, our evolutionary past? Their closest relatives are the snakes. Um, so snakes have basically evolved from an ancestor with lizards. Um, if you go back further, you bring in. Um, you, you bring in other reptiles, uh, then you bring in the dinosaurs, um, and your your other vertebrates go fit in there. We have a tough time knowing exactly. It's very difficult to retrieve some of those deep roots in evolutionary relationships, exactly where mammal-like reptiles came off of stem reptiles and all those sorts of things. Mm -hmm. um, so it's hard it's hard to retrieve that with any real accuracy, but we know enough that things like dinosaurs, uh, which tend to be reptilian when we look at them, right? Uh, uh, were around for so long um, that they had a chance to evolve all sorts of social behaviors um, mm -hmm. in their history, right? So hundreds of millions of years, it's a long time. So um, when you ask about how uh, things like social behavior uh, fall across different groups, we have to think about that. Um, and, you know, we've got a little bit of fossil evidence for communal nesting and dinosaurs and things like that. Apparently there were these above ground nests of, big dinosaur eggs and mothers were all guarding them in a group. And so there's really interesting stuff going on there that has vanished and we don't see in modern reptiles, uh, unfortunately. Hmm. Um, so, you know, a little interesting fragmentary fossils that give us insights into what was going on a long time ago. Yeah. And is, is it sometimes you hear that, um, 
that like the the crocs and stuff were were around during dinosaurs is that true yeah we had crocodilians we had um turtles uh in particular uh, turtles have been out around a long long time and there's speculation about how the shell evolved it's really fascinating um, there's an early turtle like marine like turtle that only had a bottom shell not a top shell and there's huh. arg argument about whether that was the the missing link sort of thing interesting um, yeah and, and that was i think 200 280 million years ago or something so and then that little chest armor just kept on getting selected for sure to, until it wrapped around fascinating yeah. and it can happen probably and why doesn't anything else have any like, well i mean i guess armadillos sure um a couple other little things but huh yeah, yeah. i mean it, it's it's definitely evolved in you know armadillos and um, you know, similar things in things like pangolins and anteaters and things like that, a bit of that kind of protection. Yeah. Um, so, and it, and it, it, but it comes with trade-offs, right? So, uh, most of those things that have that kind of armor are then slow, right? Mm -hmm. So they've traded off speed for armor, Mm -hmm. uh, and both work right for predators and they, they both work maybe differently for different predators. So, um, down here in Florida, we've got the, the Florida softshell turtle, which is traded off its armor, right? It's a pancake. It's lost the bones and the edge of its shell. It's just cartilage. And so it's like this pancake that can shoot through the water. So it'd be difficult for a gator to catch it. Hmm. But once they catch it, it's history. Right. And, you know, I get friends send me videos of, gators torturing these poor softshell turtles yeah, yeah whereas there's there's youtube videos what? with a with a gator trying what? to eat a hard shell turtle and he just can't do it he's just flipping it up the side down and can't crush it right and so yeah so there's those trade-offs there that that work they both work speed works armor works sometimes you know it's best to have one or the other huh is it just is it just that, uh, well, I mean, I guess you, gators are certainly trying to crush the thing and can't. It must just be, because you'd think you could still kill a turtle, but, oh, but they if do. you can't eat the thing, it's, Look, they it's do. It's, just, it's just energy. a size thing with the gators and the turtles. And it's a study I've been wanting to do for a while where we ask which size gator can eat what size turtle. Because you get a big enough gator and boy, you'll just be walking through the swamp and hear crunch, you know. So a uh, big enough gator can crunch wow. a good sized turtle. But the really big female cooter turtles and slider turtles, they, it takes a really big gator to be able to break their shell. Huh. And whether or wow. not they spend some time trying to nibble on the head and legs and things, I, you know, I'm not sure, but. Yeah, yeah. It's an interesting question. It's difficult That's, to test without, you know, we can't do experiments with, you know, we can't. You just throw one in can't get ethics approval for throwing. It, right. Crush it or um, not. So, and, and then if you use a turtle shell from a dead turtle, it's not as strong as a live turtle's shell. And so there's, there's a right. lot of work to be done, some physics and things to figure out to, to mimic a proper turtle shell and look at the bite force of, of a crocodilian and, 
try to put it all together. But it'll be, it'll be a fun study. Hmm. And what about reptiles, um, history, and and uh, the origins of flight? Yeah. So, um, you know, we're pretty much sure that, you know, birds evolved out of a dinosaur and therefore essentially a reptilian type ancestor. Um, there's a lot of debate about exactly how it started and whether, you know, these um, dinosaurs were running around and gliding a little bit or gliding off a tree and all this. And there's some fantastic fossils that show uh, how flight evolved uh, in some of these early sort of things. And, uh, and then we have the pterodactyls, which evolved flight separately uh, from the, the other birds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then we have flight evolving in the insects, right? And then in the bats. So um, that's four. It's either four or five independent evolutions of, of proper flight. Yeah. Uh, and, and those are those are them. And then, of course, we've got gliding things, right, which are almost flight. Yeah. And we see those in lizards and snakes in in uh, in Borneo and, and Southeast Asia. Right. We've got Draco, the little lizards that are uh, little flying dragons that are going from tree to tree um, mm-hmm. and uh, flying snakes, which are fantastic to watch. I'm sure you've probably seen. Yeah. YouTube, YouTube of that. Um, yeah. So, yeah, it seems like such a handy thing to, <laughs> to evolve. You can see why it happened in so many different circumstances from, because uh, I, I think in, in some cases it was, you know, feathers were more something for warmth and then kind of got big enough eventually, or you could show off by jumping and get just a little bit more air or something possibly to attract a mate. And then next thing you know, Oh, look, we can fly. You just got to give it thousands and thousands of generations. And the physics Um, is amazing of the whole, we're still trying to, you know, it's, it's not reptiles, so I'm not involved in it, but uh, ornithologists and, and people trying to understand feathers and, and, and how they work, it's, it's just super complex. And it's something that we haven't been able to copy yet for human flight, right? For jets and what have you. So what about the diversity of lizards? Are, are there, what are, what are some things like, like uh, I guess one, if you just, what, what is the criteria for what is a lizard? And then, so, and then what, what sort of things do you tend to see as just really common traits? And then what areas do you tend to see a bit more diversity between species? Is that a difficult question to answer? That's okay. Um, we have some, we have some groups of lizards that um, are super conserved in their body shape, roughly how their appendages look and tail, et cetera. Um, like the monitor lizards, you know, they're something like, uh, oh, between 50 and 70 species. And we got some miniature ones that are like this, and they're pretty much the same thing as the Komodo dragons in terms of their body shape. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, so we have a highly conserved lizard body plan, and that's kind of the basic 
kind of the basic shape of a lizard, right? It's a, um, the legs are um, more sprawl out than mammals, right? Mammals, the legs are more under the animal. Um, and the lizards tend to move that front right uh, leg at the same time they move the back left. And that's how they go back and forth as they move. And some of them can reach tremendous speeds and and take advantage of anaerobic respiration and what have you. The skinks and the geckos are both big groups that, um, you know, once you get this group, which we'll, we put them in a family kind of arbitrarily, most of the skinks are diurnal. Most of the geckos are nocturnal. And there's a few exceptions, but, um, and the diversity you're asked, you asked about is, is really interesting in the geckos with their toe pads and their ability yeah. to stick. Uh, there's just That's so such much a cool superpower. It's amazing. And it's achieved differently in different ways in different groups of geckos. So, um, it's and and it comes down when when morphologists study this and physicists, you know, it comes down to these little tiny forces uh, involved in the little tiny webbing. So it's not just some sticky glue substance or something. It's all about negative pressure and suction and all sorts of really interesting things. And it it the toe pad structures can be very different in different groups of geckos. Yeah, that's incredible. I've, uh, I've I've seen some of those drawings trying to explain it, and yeah, they. I mean, you're absolutely right that I and intuitively, you think, oh, their their fingers, their pads stick, and it does. It seems like glue or something. But what about? Could you give a little bit some of the history of lizard research? Because I really like when sometimes you get to see. Uh, some of the early thinking on things, uh, you know, even hundreds of years ago or whatever, when people first started, uh, you know, cataloging things that they would discover and whatnot, because there's so many and this may not be your area, but sometimes it gives insight into kind of intuitively what we as humans assume is happening. And then often that evolves over time and, and, uh, uh, much like we think that lizards are solitary just because of intuitively. And we find out that they're actually much more social. Um, so what, what's kind of some of the history of lizard research? I think um, signaling has been a big one. Um, so the signaling between say rival males and between males and females, males to females, you know, with the dewlaps, all the species with the, the colored dewlaps, all the anoles, um, there's, there was a lot of early work, um, looking at that signaling. And so that was kind of the, um, in this theme of social behavior, Gordon Berghardt, who you've already talked to and a bunch of colleagues in 1976 got together at a conference and held a special symposium on the social behavior of reptiles. And they were the first to kind of say, hey, there's some social things going on here and it's, let's put it on the map. And so high on their list was this signaling that had been seen in these lizards that um, kind of do make themselves obvious. The males, in order to show off for the females and attract her with head bobs and push-ups and blue patches under their bellies and dewlaps and all these different things, 
you can study that, right? So the males have to kind of take a chance to attract females. So they're out in the open on a big boulder, for example, trying to tell other males, this is my territory while they're attracting a female at the same time. And so a lot of the early work on social behavior in lizards was this really obvious signaling. And you could go out and watch these males and get a lot of data um, without scaring them because they, they've got to hang in there to get the mating and, and be bold, right? And so you see that around your house in South Florida, right? You see the males being very bold. Hmm. And that, that works until it doesn't work, right? <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's um, a gamble. Yeah. Uh, so the other, some of the other things they talked about, um, there was communal nesting, and Gordon had worked on that in iguanas uh, in uh, Central America. Uh, and there were... Uh, a lot of uh, the male-male combat stuff was covered, too, um, in lizards and snakes in particular. Uh, so some species and some don't uh, engage in this male combat before, you know, presumably over a female. You often don't see the female. She's either being secretive or they know she's around. Uh, and two males will will fight, and it's often what they call uh, ritualistic. It's not really um, deadly or to the death or right. sometimes some blood is drawn, but it's, it's not designed to kill the other. I'm guessing because if, if, if it's, it's too risky, right? Cause you might be the one that, to die. So you don't need to die. So it's a wrestling match, right? Uh, between, mm -hmm. and I often get uh, friends or whatever that see two snakes pushing on each other and send me a, a picture and say, I found two snakes mating, but it's usually two males wrestling. What's the one that does the push-ups? There are a bunch, but... Uh, there's, there's, there's a bunch? There's a bunch. Uh, yeah. <laughs> that's that's a, what a... What a funny way to show, especially from a human point of view. Uh, some of the anoles, sort of yeah, behavior. some of the anoles do it. The uh, fence lizards do it. The spiny lizards out west do it. Um, it's it's a pretty popular one for lizards. Uh, in fact, all over the world, this it's usually a head bob or a push-up or both, some, some variation of head bobbing and push-ups. And it's quite complex because sometimes uh, – what appears to be the same behavior can have a different meaning. So it depends on someone sending you a signal and what you send back. Uh, so the context of the signal being sent to you uh, is needed to interpret your reaction. So in other words, you can use a head bob to dominate and you can use a head bob to submit. Mm. Uh, so it's really interesting and it's um, it receives a lot of attention from researchers because lizards so some species of lizards uh, are quite obvious and will let you watch them do these things hmm it, uh, yeah because i was going to say is it are those are those push-ups always just males trying to attract females or is there some is there some signaling to potential predators ever that like hey i'm the fittest lizard around Better check out some other. I think there's some lizard around missing a leg. Go and get. <laughs> That's go and get the that challenge, one. right? So we see these behaviors. 
we, it hasn't been established for that species and we've got to test it and figure out with experiments and context and behavioral observations, is it to attract females? Is it to um, send a signal to rival males? Or is it what you were talking about, which is called a predator uh, deterrent or pursuit deterrent signal mm -hmm. that says, I see you, predator, so don't bother chasing me because you're not going to get me. And yeah. the predator needs to recognize that signal, right? Because then the predator will not chase because it's a waste of the predator's time. Mm -hmm. And so that's like a kangaroo thumping, you know, when a kangaroo thumps its foot, it's saying to the dingo or the other predators, I can see you. Oh, um, I didn't. It, yeah. I can see you. Don't bother chasing me. Yeah. Um, beavers do that. Yep. Uh, gazelles have the big. Uh, that's the kind of classic one, right? Yep. Jumping super high up into the air yep. to they they stand out so it's confusing why they do that but if right. it's signaling to the predator like yeah. look how high i can jump i can definitely outrun you yeah they've already been discovered right so they're saying you know two things potentially with the gazelles one is i see you and this is a signal that says i see you and then two i'm very fit yeah yeah um, and you've lost the element of surprise exactly yeah, that's interesting. So some lizards do do this. We we have um, revealed that in some lizards, uh, but so few have been looked at that it's it's going to take another many decades of more people going out doing these sorts of things to work out um, to get a full. So there's plenty. If if people are like, "Hey, I'm I'm in I'm sitting here in Buffalo where I don't want to be, and I'd much rather be out in <laughs> out in Australia or mm -hmm. or Florida or South something, Florida. looking like lizards. There's there's no there there's no end in sight for lizard research. They're, there's no they're end not going in sight to, have to worry about running out of work. No end in sight, but the uh, the pay is not sort of doctor lawyer scale. Yeah, right, right. Um, I. Passion required. Right, right. So I made a joke about a lizard losing a limb, but they do they regenerate limbs, don't they? They regenerate toes. Uh, they can regenerate toes and tails, right? Tails. Is, is, oh, tails. That's what, because, and that's usually like if a, if a predator snags it, you can just kind of break your own tail, just re release the um, emergency escape. It works really Gosh. well. You you know, you see it with the cat, right? Your house cat. It'll be sitting there with the tail and the lizard's gone. So um, there's a <laughs> there's a great one in Australia too that that I published a little note on um, and I had heard it from a friend first that there was this legless lizard in Australia, about this long. Hmm. Quite secretive, but if you go out on the roads at night you can find them, right? And it's mostly tail. It's like our glass lizards here in Florida. So it's, it's a legless lizard. It's lost its legs. It's um, so it kind of looks like a snake, but it has eyelids and things like a lizard. And mm. and uh, I was told by a friend, a colleague, that the tail had came off of one, and that it did a crazy. The tail actually moved like a snake off the road, and and uh, I was on a road and. West Australia and a car just rolled over one. We stopped to look at it and it was unfortunately dying, flipping around and 
the tail was broken, but not quite removed. And I pulled it off and the tail went right off the road, like 20 feet away. Um, wow. We, we since got videos, uh, videos of this and it's just amazing. So some tails don't just squiggle there in place. They actually go somewhere. Wow. That's so cool. So, so it's, yeah, you let your tail go and then the, and then the predators right. off. So you're, it. you're wow. evolving something that you've evolved something that actually, you know, is not part of your living self anymore, which is pretty fascinating. Huh? Richard Dawkins called it uh, extended phenotype, right? Like a, a beaver. Dam. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Huh. Um man, that that's in but what's with the regenerating toes? I is it just like changing your shoes once in a while? That that's not getting away from predators, right? <laughs> no, but uh, if you you know, if any of us could regenerate our digits, we would be more useful than having lost one, right? So Right. Uh, you see it in crickets and all sorts of marine animals, uh, starfish, uh, you know, sea stars. Uh, there's all sorts of salamanders regenerate toes. There's a lot of regeneration skills uh, evolved in different animals, and um, it, it attracts a lot of attention from researchers because we want to be able to regenerate a, a lost finger, for example. Mm. Uh, so it does get a lot of attention uh, and they're learning more and more about it. Uh, so I think with fingers and stuff and a lizard, you want to be, be able to run fast, et cetera. Right. And if you've lost a digit, it would be good to, to grow it back. Uh, yeah. That, that would be incredible. What other, what other biomimicry stuff are uh, they working on with lizards? Cause at the end of the day, like what's in it for us, right? That's, that's what, <laughs> sometimes uh, that's what we, that's what we're faced with as scientists. You know, we, we can do our esoteric research, but if we can't show a, a benefit for humans, uh, we, yeah, I, I had this researcher on it. It just, uh, it, it it stuck with me just because it's this person that, um, oh shoot, I'm forgetting her name. Sorry, person. Um, but she was in, in, uh, in Washington, the university of Vancouver and studying regeneration in hearing in hair cells in fish, fish, fish hair cell. They, they regenerate their hearing. And so looking at it, like, can we do that? Um, and which is this amazing, imagine not ha imagine being able to regenerate your hearing, not having to worry about hearing loss and, and or wearing uh, a hearing aid yeah. or wearing hearing aids or listening to music too loud or, or whatever else. And I think she was getting like $8,000 a year or something like that in funding to regenerate human hearing. Wow. Just like, what is wrong with people's priority? It's just, it's just because if you don't know about the stuff, it sounds weird. You know, mm -hmm. we're, we're studying fish hearing cells and then some politician or whatever is going to go, well, why the hell would we waste our time doing that? So, um, well, sometimes so our arguments are good and we just are not getting our points across for whatever reason. 
Right. You know, so I, about three quarters of my work is conservation related. Uh, and if you don't care about the biodiversity crisis and the fact that we're losing species, there are still things like invasive species causing, you know, billions of dollars of damage uh, yeah. ac- across the, the world. So there are, there are economic uh, costs of things like invasive species and in some cases, biodiversity losses. So uh, it's hard to get some of those points across. And, uh, and, and, and sometimes we can't deliver guaranteed results right so mm-hmm. scientists are working on probabilities and oh prob- boy you know. do people hate that, that, mm-hmm. that that's like the the number of arguments that i've had with people that that, that, that they're like won't get vaccinated because you can still get covid or transmit COVID. yeah can <laughs> it is possible it is possible when wearing a seatbelt to die in a car accident it doesn't render seatbelts worthless apparently we just don't teach it well in in grade school right in elementary school what what, you know we we, we could right people should be able to grasp that it doesn't seem it's crazy i mean my my hope is still after after 18 months of feeling pretty defeated my hope is still that this is going to be uh an opportunity for um enlightenment in some ways in terms of understanding the importance of a few of these you you talk about um biodiversity loss and invasive species and in conservation i think uh i think this idea of of zoonosis from uh biodiversity loss from ecosystem loss from uh, from land loss forcing species closer together to global travel and global shipping creating more more of these not just with covid but with uh murder hornets uh, get pinged on the news uh, every may or so and and uh certainly all over our country now and in, invasive species killing a bunch of trees when people you know potentially from taking firewood from one area mm-hmm. into another area and my, my, my that might start showing up on people's radar a little bit more. <laughs> I hope so. It's uh, I don't know. it's disappointing that we, you know, we talk about variants and no one understands that those, you know, that the Delta variant is has evolved. Uh, uh, you know, it's a very simple thing, and and even even doctors tend to not use the lingo, right? The, the, yeah, it's a mutant and a and it's evolution. Instead, yeah. they use softer words like variants and. Uh, you know adapted i usually say adapted if i'm like if i'm in a certain club where i know the word evolution's going to really upset people and I, i'll i'll say adapt adoption or adaption yeah. or something like that yeah. or, uh, just change over time it's just people the the idea that evolution is such a trigger word for so many so many people is uh, discouraging. Yeah, and you don't see much talk about the ultimate cause of COVID nineteen from the coronavirus is 
it's it's all about how can we and I get it like we, we need to fix the immediate problem we need human health needs to be taken care of but the public needs to know how this happened and evolution yeah. is a part of it right and we yeah. think it's a pangolin from a bat or, you know we're not a hundred percent sure what the intermediate host was and what have you but if you do the genetic work which they're going crazy doing it it's come from bats through some intermediate uh host and and it's evolving as it goes and so you know this is this the fifth coronavirus and since the 1960s mm -hmm. we've had five of these things uh two of them were minor didn't didn't cause anything three of them the other three were sars uh mers middle eastern respiratory syndrome and then and then and then this one, COVID-19. Mm -hmm. So all three of those were bad, and this one is terrible, right? So yeah. if we've had five of these things since the 1960s, we got more coming, right? Yeah. So we need to understand, you know, that wildlife trafficking might have been behind it all, for example. Yeah. Because you have these meat wet markets with all these animals in cages and they're dripping on each other and all these new things come out of this. We, we know this. So yeah, yeah. Um, regardless of which one it was and which market and all that, it doesn't matter. We're going to have more of these things if we don't change how we uh, perceive things like wildlife trafficking. So people don't care. I just published a paper with colleagues in the criminology department about the relative costs of, human trafficking, uh, drug trafficking, arms trafficking, and wildlife trafficking, right? So as you would guess, wildlife trafficking comes out fourth on that list for people mm -hmm. in terms of care, uh, the human perception that it's a problem, et cetera, et cetera. Co the cost was also fourth, right? Mm -hmm. Well, if we can blame COVID-19 on wildlife trafficking, which we might be able to, it looks like, then it's become the most costly of all the trafficking yeah. by far, right? The cost of COVID-19 is, it's almost immeasurable. It's in the tens of trillions or something, right? So, right. so now wildlife trafficking should be on the map as a really serious problem that we need to put resources in and politicians, governments need to get on it um, because it can on its own essentially cause a COVID-19. Yeah, it's it's pretty it's pretty tricky though. Even 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 though the the small cost of the preventative stuff is, I, I mean, people people are never we aren't we aren't going to have a holiday once a year where we celebrate and show gratitude for all the pandemics that we didn't have exactly. this year because because we you know took some of the you know more rigorous biosecurity practices from industrial farming and applied right. them to things like mm -hmm. wet markets and other things uh in uh, uh, around around the world and can't measure uh, it that's uh, like i i don't I don't know how I've been, I've been safe, uh, or I've been careful. I'm pretty, pretty darn careful. I, I haven't gotten COVID. I don't, I haven't, there, it's impossible for me to measure the 
COVID that I didn't have. It's, right. I, I'm grateful that I haven't got right. COVID, but it's hard to, uh, you know, once I think once you're uh, choking on your own lung fluids, you have a real appreciation for uh, uh for the seriousness of it after the fact, but and yeah, this it's it's such a human nature, a, I guess. We just don't, you know, we it's not my area, obviously, but it's just we just don't we can't appreciate the cost of what would have happened. Well, it's also funny to me. I've been thinking more lately about how how it's we've kind of evolved to make it very difficult to understand evolution the the way in which we've evolved we have a lot of just top down thinking uh, the ability to have have a social animal that has these kind of agreed upon um big ideas of liberty or freedom or gods or whatever like this kind of top down mm -hmm. sort of making sense of life that has a lot of utility in terms of motivating one to get out of bed in the morning or whatever mm -hmm. it can kind of backfire in in terms of explanatory power and create all sorts of cognitive dissonance and denial and things when when these uh when these unexpected uh, em emergent properties of evolved complex dynamic systems start springing up and you hadn't taken a biology course in your life. Um, so it's, yeah, man, tricky situation. So in, in terms of the, the um, actually, can we close with the converse, uh, uh, conservation um, side of things? Because I, I just had one, I had one or two really quick other, oh, one, biomimicry. Uh, they, they do stuff with under, understanding suction cups and, and things from the, um, from the get-go's, right? Is there, are there any other, any other cool ones you can think of off the top of your head? Otherwise, well, I have a next question. The regeneration a bit, I think, although... I hear more about that in salamanders for their digits um, than mm. I do. Um, It'd be fun to have one salamander digit. Like, I know the idea is, is that we regenerate our own digit, but to be able to regenerate a different species digit. Well, there is a, there's a salamander here in Florida called a one-toed amphiuma. And it's an <laughs> it eel-like an, eel salamander, and it, it has... Um, four legs, tiny legs that are, they're losing them, right? Evolutionarily. Yeah. And they're losing the toes as well. There's a three-toed, a two-toed, and a one-toed. Uh, Evolution's so, just digesting them over time. Yeah. yeah. So it's kind of funny when you just see this wow. one, one little leg with a little toe on the end of it. Huh. And they That's move so through strange. the water like an eel. So they undulate and they've got a, you know, a slightly dorsally, Lateral, dorsal laterally flattened tail and so they they don't really use those legs anymore and they, they kind of move but they don't do anything mm. so um yeah they're losing so there is a one-toed salamander um what, what about the uh i wanted to ask in terms of the social life it what about hunting is there social hunting at all i, I mentioned pack hunters early on <laughs> yeah we've got we think there's some social hunting with the, the um, 
crocodilians, especially American alligators, um, getting together in groups and hurting oh, fish. Oh, man. In case you weren't scared of alligators enough already, I was worried about one alligator getting yeah. me. Now they're pack hunters. Well, it's, you know, it's for fish so far, I think, mainly. <laughs> okay. um, but there's been a few observations. You know, you got to go out in the swamps at night. My other co-author, co the Russian, uh, Vladimir, he, mm. he's uh, Donets. He, he, has done a lot of crocodilian work across the world at night in swamps, etc. And it's a tough place to be. It's tough to see what you're doing. There's mosquitoes, it's hot, etc. And then, yeah, you got to make sure you're not a meal uh, for some of the bigger ones. But um, there's just not enough people out watching. Uh, but they definitely, uh, he thinks he also saw groups of gators moving toward a pig on the, on the edge of the water's edge. So, the other possibility is those uh, Komodo dragons we spoke about. Because um, they'll get together uh, on a kill or a dying uh, buffalo or deer, or whatever, and use one another as leverage and pull bits apart. Uh, so we know they cooperate with feeding, and then they will follow, you know, they sometimes will hamstring one of these deer and then follow it. There seems to be some possibilities that they're doing some group uh, cooperation in, in that hunting and then especially in feeding. Hmm. Hmm. Fascinating. Um, all right. Well, let's, let's close with a little conservation talk. That's a, it's a super important issue. I, I've been, I've been getting more and more into the idea of, uh, of one health um, and the the concept of human and animal and ecosystem interconnectedness and kind of uh, bringing more light to that that subject. Mm -hmm. So, um, what what's your work with in terms of uh, conservation efforts with lizards? Mostly, uh, you know, we mentioned earlier that there are a lot of invasive lizards in. Florida, it's probably, you know, the worst place for invasive reptiles in the world, possibly. Uh, and, you know, Florida fish and game are, are overwhelmed. They don't have the money to, uh, to control these animals so that you can't eradicate any of them. You could potentially control some of them in certain areas, but so they have to prioritize, you know, which ones are causing problems. And we, we don't have enough of that, of those data. We don't know the impacts of all these different invasive lizards on native communities, animal communities. So, so you know. what, what's going on here? Because so, so you're saying in Florida where you can step outside, look around and see lizards crawling around your house people are <laughs> importing other uh, other lizards to have as pets or something and then they're yeah, getting so, released you know you've got geckos and anoles on your house the little guys but people are bringing okay. in these beautiful rainbow agamas from africa and butter butterfly agamas from Asia, southeast asia and uh um Basilisk lizards from Central and South America. These are all neat pets, right? And you bring them in and then they get away. And now we got populations of these things all over the place. So, uh, you know, 
tend to be bigger things. And we got the tegus, which are even bigger, and the Nile monitors are here. So some 30-some species here that don't belong. And Wow. So we need impact studies so that we can say, all right, this one's not too much of a problem, or this one is a big problem. And this feeds back into, you know, if we can't afford to control them, uh, maybe we can control them in one area where they're affecting an endangered species. But if we can't afford to control them, we need to understand how they do so well and make sure we don't let others in that are related. And it's a it's a tough, it's a challenging sort of game. But some of my research is to try to go out and look at impacts um, and also predict how these things are going to spread and disperse. And then that brings in climate warming, right? So as the climate warms, the the niche for these animals can shrink or or get bigger. Yeah. Uh, and these things can all march further north and that sort of thing. So that's something we're getting heavily involved in too. Yeah, that's the thing with warming is there's there's winners and losers, probably more losers, but uh but it's it's still in in, in terms of just drastic I mean, drastic population changes um, and and spread and migration are probably going to be deeply impactful in ways that we can't possibly predict, um, but not necessarily for the one species of lizard that does really well for it, right. it or whatever. Right. And I'm also, we my lab's doing a lot of work on climate change, predicting climate change impacts on native species so um especially turtles so we've got a lot of turtles down here um that are nesting in south so we can ask the question is climate change going to affect the adults or the eggs most and well an adult can move into the shade but the eggs can't right so the mom puts the eggs in the ground and she leaves so the eggs are just going to be laid in hotter and hotter places as the climate changes, unless she makes a decision, quote unquote, a genetically underpinned decision to put her eggs in a more shaded area. And so I do a lot of work on nesting and turtles to try to understand what her choices are and what they would be in a climate change scenario. Um, and so, for example, if you're a softshell turtle, they nest quite out in the open. So we would predict they could just start nesting in the shade. So as long as they can win the race, as long as climate change isn't so fast compared to the generation time of a softshell turtle, then the moms should be able, the ones that lay in more shaded areas should pass on their genes and softshell turtles will be fine. But the mud turtles are laying in full shade right now. So how are they going to nest cooler in a climate change scenario? Hmm. So these are the kind of studies that I'm doing at the moment. And uh, some of them involve just being in Florida and some I look at, geographic variation, I go up the coast to say New York and look at what already has evolved, right? So are um, snapping turtles in Canada laying in more open places because the summers are cooler up there than they are in Florida. Mm. And from that, we can predict, well, that was in the evolutionary repertoire of snapping turtles. So we think that they'll be okay or they can shift to the shade as the climate warms and those sorts of things. It is sort of impressive in a way from the, from the point of view of a 
of a really successful invasive species, just imagine the chance of what, what an odd chance happening where you're some lizard in Africa that's just evolved just enough in this in this ecosystem where where you've carved out enough of a slice of life and to to just make it by and to just get mates and to just get enough food and just escape enough predators and 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 you're kind of at the on on a knife's edge uh and then some weird primate species picks you up and brings you somewhere else. And then, I mean, so many invasive species probably weren't invasive. So many species came to a less favorable environment where when they escaped or whatever didn't, or they couldn't find a mate or or whatever else. But in that rare chance happening where you've just landed in paradise where you're the the you find this new thing to eat that has absolutely no defenses evolved for you and right. has never seen anything like yep. you and you, you just these populations can just explode out of nowhere you, just yeah it might be free of parasites because you've been bred in captivity so they might have almost no parasites and then, and then <laughs> so it's going to take a while for them to to pick up the parasites from florida um that sort of thing Right. So it's fascinating. And there are stories that are, some of them are, are true. How much this happens, we don't know. That reptile pet trade breeders would deliberately release groups of, of lizards, uh, so that they could, and, and then that little population would explode and then they could go, get those lizards as they needed them to sell them rather than have 50 aquariums in their room and have to feed all these things. Right. So yeah. And not to mention you're like, you're sticking a bunch of lizards in your pants and walking through airport security (laughs) and riding with these things. Oh man, there's some serious, they take it very seriously in Australia. Uh, If you get caught taking an animal out or in, you're in deep trouble. So don't tr- don't put a koala bear in <laughs> your in your in your carry on or right. you do like really research how to smuggle things ahead of time <laughs> um well awesome uh, well this is a fun conversation did you have any i want to make sure and plug your book and everything but did you have any were there any open loops there that you wanted to close or anything no, it um, was that was fun. I enjoyed that as well, and uh, and uh, well, check out so- the secret social lives of reptiles, everybody, with uh, both Gordon, who was on recently. Oh my gosh, Gordon recommended you. Not uh, I said Jeff Larson earlier, but it's that's it, in the same poker group. Yeah, it was Gordon. It was Gordon that recommended you, and um, Vladimir uh, Dennett. Dinets? Dinets. Dinets. Um, so yeah, check that out. Uh, and um, also, anything else that you wanted to plug at all, Sean? Your university site or anything like that? Well, um, check out our conservation biology program at USF, our graduate program. And uh, that's about it. Thanks, Shane. 
Awesome. Thank you so much. Okay. And thank you listeners for being such a wonderful, curious people. We'll talk with you more next week. All right. Once again, as a reminder, check out my episode on Pete Holmes. You made it weird. It's a real fun episode. My fifth appearance. Me and Pete, we get along great. We have terrific conversations. So you're going to like that. You always get to see a different side of me when I'm uh, a guest rather than a host and that sort of thing. Um, your Patreon support helps so much and is 100% used to fund the making of this show. You know who doesn't see $1 profit? this guy so keep this show alive go to patreon.com slash shane moss and more details soon of hopefully exciting projects clicking into place um next week on the show talking about um talking about bushmeat trade um and talking about another it's another one health episode talking about the uh, the intersection between humans, animals, and the environment. Um, talking a little bit about zoonosis, pathogens that influence all of those connections, biodiversity loss, um, different cultures, how to influence. Oh, this is this is we we really um, talk a lot about into uh, uh, how how to influence and change norms as as new information comes in as uh as scientists etc become aware of ooh, ooh, that's a good sneeze should stop and and re-record not going to that's just what you just saw was a perfect it's a perfect sneeze. If every sneeze like was like that, the you know life would be so much better. Um, so reset. All right, doesn't matter what I was just talking about, but I do remember. So we were talking about resetting norms, um, how to influence not not just others, not just like a, another individual, but talking about how how to create um cultural change kind of more from the bottom up by by um by talking with uh with you know citizens with with um people in communities and uh yeah really really cool episode important subject matter so check that out and those of you that listen all the way to the end you are of course my favorites